So we continue now um, with our study through uh, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts as we've been working through this book. And this morning we're going to begin looking at the uh, chapter that he's entitled The Present Kingdom. Um, If you remember from the last couple of lessons that Desmond uh, taught, he walked us through the prophesied kingdom, uh, what the prophets had to say about the kingdom of God and its fulfillment. And if you remember from those lessons Desmond, uh, that Desmond taught, uh, the Old Testament closes with Malachi speaking as a prophet, and then we have what are known as the 400 years of silence, or the intertestamental period. And then as the curtain opens on the New Testament, you have both Matthew and Luke starting uh, with genealogies. Luke gets into it a little bit later in his account, but uh, Matthew starts right off off the bat. And, you know, maybe genealogies are one of those things that you kind of go through. Maybe if you're doing a Bible reading plan, you you maybe check out a little bit mentally (laughs) as you're reading through through those. Um, Because you, you can try to struggle through, like, what relevance does this have? Well, I don't even know how to pronounce these names. You know, who are these guys? So in and of themselves, they may not seem very interesting, but as you track through the Bible and you see the movement of God throughout the Bible, and as you're looking for this one who has been prophesied about, genealogies become very interesting, right? Is this the one? who has been prophesied about. And so you have both Matthew and Luke starting with that perspective, showing us, let's let's trace this all the way back to the promises of God at the very beginning, and let's walk through and show you that this one has arrived, is stepping onto the scene. So the genealogies become much more exciting when you understand that reality. You're kind of like sitting on the edge of your seat as you hear these names. You're like, I remember these names as I read through the Old Testament. And they were all pointing to this one, and now he's here. And so Matthew starts off his, his gospel. You can't help me with anything. Siri was trying to take over my PowerPoint here. Um, so Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then notice this, the son of David the son of Abraham. Now, as you've been with us and we've been working through the Old Testament, those two names are very prominent for us, right? We remember as we go back to Genesis 12, the promises that were given to Abraham, that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then as we think about David and the promised uh, reality that he would have a son who would sit on the throne eternally. So when you hear those two names, and especially for the Jewish audience that would have heard this, their attention is grabbed immediately as it's pointing forward to here is the one who has been prophesied about. The promises of God are about to come to pass in this person. You see Mark starting off uh, very similarly it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Notice, notice how the, the New Testament writers constantly are going back to the Old Testament, pointing to prophecies that have been made and showing how they're fulfilled now in Christ. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths 
straight. So Mark starts here by quoting from both Malachi and Isaiah, both of whom foretold that God would send a herald, right? Someone to proclaim. Uh, As Jesus refers to this person, he says he was a prophet um, that was going to appear in advance of God's king to announce his forthcoming arrival and to urge people to get ready for him. And this this was a very common practice um, in antiquity of a herald uh, uh, going forth before a king would come to arrive in a town. Somebody would be sent in advance to say, this king is coming, right? You kind of see some similarity too, even even in our day, when a king or a president or something is going to go visit another country, that country prepares for the arrival of that person, right? And so this is the same thing that was happening. A herald would be sent forth and would say, this king is coming. And so John the Baptist is the forerunner here and proclaiming that the king is on his way and is about to arrive. So the message that the gospel writers are inspired uh, to communicate early in their letters is very clear. And, And the message is essentially this, the waiting is over. The exile is about to end and the time of fulfillment is at hand. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and I want you to see the first words that Mark records him saying in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. If somebody can read that for us. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, good. So, so just think again about the weight of these words. I know that we can kind of read through them fairly quickly, but here's Jesus, and the first thing he says is, the time is fulfilled. Right, this is a staggering statement. It's like everything that has been prepared for is now here. Now, the kingdom of God is not an expression that the Old Testament uses, but, the, but Jesus speaks of it often in his teaching, and it really sums up the hope that the prophets spoke of. There on your notes, Jesus understands that he has come in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. I want you to see a couple passages I have noted there on your, on your note sheet. Matthew 13 Verses 16 and 17, here's Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it, right? Just the blessedness of this moment that you are in right now, right? You're, you're seeing and hearing things that the prophets and righteous people looked forward to in that day. And then John 5, 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Again, these are staggering statements that Jesus is making here to his audience. So as as we think about this aspect of the kingdom being 
present, we want to remember what our definition for the kingdom of God is. Now, we've been talking about that quite a bit. So let's see. Does anybody remember what the definition for God's kingdom is according to what Vaughn Roberts lays out in his book? We want to take a shot at it. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, right? So God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So let's, as we've been trying to do through each of these chapters that Roberts lays out here, let's kind of pick that definition apart and look at it as we interact with the present kingdom. So let's think about God's people. Um, If you remember, Adam, the first man, failed in his role as the image of God and was exiled from the garden. And then God uh, made a new start, as it were, with the Israelites, who were called to be his holy people. They were to reflect his character as they obeyed his law. And as we saw from there, they too failed and were sent into exile. And there on your notes, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. He is what the people of God were meant to be. Okay? He is what the people of God were meant to be. So let's look here first as Jesus as the true Adam or the true man. Uh, the Gospels stress the reality that Jesus was a real human being, right? He was born of woman. Uh, We see him sleeping. We see him weeping. We see him getting tired. And then we see him dying uh, as well. He is descended from Adam, as Luke 3 shows us, but born of a virgin and therefore not tainted by sin. And I want you to see how uh, just amazing this is. As we think about Luke's genealogy here, I want you to see what Luke is inspired to do here. And this is a larger portion, so I'm going to have you turn there with me. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And here in the latter half of Luke 3 you have the uh, genealogy that we were talking about earlier. And so we're not going to go through that whole genealogy there. But you can see, if you look at verse 23, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then it goes through his lineage, the genealogy here. Now drop down to verse 38. As the genealogy is concluding here, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay? Now, as we hear Adam's name, right, it kind of transports us back to the garden. We remember the fall and, and what took place there as Adam was a son of God. Now, watch the next thing that Luke is inspired to say here. And this is where it's helpful 
to kind of remove chapter breaks in your mind, right? You could kind of finish your reading there one day and then you hop back in and you kind of forget what was said previously. I think they're helpful, by the way, <laughs> but sometimes it's good to just remember that. Those weren't there in the original um, text. And so here's what you have in verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Okay? So we're just thinking about Adam. We hear Adam's name. And here we have Jesus being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Okay? So, I want you to see here, when we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Adam, the son of God, was tempted by the devil and failed, right? Now we see Jesus, the unique son of God, God in the flesh, as the gospel writers are seeking to bring this out, the, the last man or the last Adam, also being tempted by the devil. Now we know what happened with the first Adam when he was tempted. So how would Jesus called the last Adam, fair in his temptation. So look with me, starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, okay, now that, again, that's, that's reminiscent of what we read back in Genesis, chapter, chapter 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written. That, that should have been Adam's response, Right? No, it is written, you shall not eat of the tree of the gar- in, in the middle of the garden. Okay? But Jesus answers and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, right? See Satan quoting scripture now? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Let me just interject and say, hermeneutics and context are very important because Satan's bringing scripture. Hey, this is what scripture says also. But Jesus says, it is said or it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we see here that whereas the first Adam was tempted and failed, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted and succeeded. He denied the devil's temptation. He resisted. He obeyed his father, something that the first Adam failed to do. So Jesus is the only human being who perfectly obeys God, his father. He is, therefore, the one person to have lived who does not deserve to be banished from God's presence. But on the cross... Right? He willingly 
faces the punishment, not that he deserves, there's no sin in him, but that his people deserve as sinners who are bound up with that first Adam. And as a result, if we trust in him, if we trust in Christ, we enter into a new humanity headed not by Adam the sinner, but by Jesus the righteous last Adam. We see this language used by Paul in Romans 5, verse 19, if somebody wants to read that for us. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, right? So there's that, that headship, right? We're in Adam, his disobedience is accounted to us. If you're in Christ, his obedience is accounted to you, right? That's the glory of the gospel. Is the wonder of it. Is this man's perfect obedience is credited to my account, and therefore I stand justified in the sight of God. It's a wonder of wonders. So we see Jesus as the true Adam, but also we see Jesus is the true Israel. Okay, as Desmond referred to last week, he is the true servant of God. And this is really important. When Jesus is a child, if you remember, Joseph and Mary take him to Egypt to protect him from Herod's persecution. We see this in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. If somebody would like to read that for us. Now when they, de- now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now that quotation there is taken from Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse 1. And notice what this passage says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there's a uh, direct reference there to Israel being called out of Egypt, and Matthew is inspired to use it to show what this ultimately was pointing to. To, or who this ultimately was pointing to. Now, some commentators would suggest that this is an unprincipled use of Old Testament prophecy. The quotation from Hosea 11.1 1 does not appear to be a messianic promise referring to an individual. Uh, the original context makes it very clear that it refers to the exodus of the nation of Israel. But Matthew, again, I would suggest is neither naive nor unprincipled, and we better be very slow to make accusations like that. But Matthew, the human author, is led by the divine author of Scripture to deliberately identify Jesus with Israel. But Jesus is different, right? He's, he's unique. After, after Jesus comes out of Egypt, he too is tempted in the wilderness, just like the nation of Israel was. But unlike them, Jesus obeys. 
and he walks in obedience to his father, whereas the nation of Israel, for the most part, walked in disobedience. Okay, so that, that's important to see. Also, something that we want to take note of is Jesus calls his first disciples. And how many does he call? Twelve. Okay. Now, if you've been working through the Old Testament with us, how many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. Okay. So this isn't a unique thing. Jesus isn't just not, I'm going to choose twelve, right? It's clear what Jesus is doing here. He's calling together a new Israel, a people faithful to him with the 12 disciples here as the foundation. So the old Israel rejects Jesus and will in turn be rejected by God. I want you to look with me at, at Matthew 21. This is a lengthier passage, so I don't have it up on the, up on the screen. Matthew 21. Verses 33 through 43, the parable of the tenants. I'm going to go ahead and read this. And I'm going to highlight particularly the last couple of verses. So Jesus says here, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now watch how Jesus equates this in verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Right? So there you have that aspect of the rejection of one and the giving of it to another. And in Matthew 19... Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem as the awful expression of that judgment. It's carried out by the Romans in A.D. 70. And so what the scripture again reminds us of again here is that those who are physically descended from Abraham does not necessarily make them true Israelites. It's only if they are believing the promise of the gospel as Abraham did. And that's what we see in Romans uh, chapter 4. Actually, go ahead and turn there with me. Romans 4. Verses 13 through 16. Which says this. 
For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay, so again, there's that that thrust back to Jesus as the true Adam, the man who would fulfill what God had commanded, and the true Israel, the one who would walk in obedience to all the commands of God. Now, so you have God's people in uh, God's place, which is what I want to turn to next, God's place. And when we think about God's place in the present kingdom, again, a little bit of backdrop here is helpful for us. Um, Adam and Eve did enjoy God's presence with them in the garden before the fall, right? And then also we see God drawing near to the Israelites, living in their midst in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But the temple in Jerusalem, again, was just a shadow pointing forward to the reality of Christ. And so there on your notes, Jesus is the true temple, the place where we may enter perfectly into God's presence. He's not just the true human human being, he's also the true God. In Christ, God himself has drawn near to us. And that's why if you remember in John chapter 1 verse 14, the apostle says this, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us, right? There's a, there's a purposeful use of that word to show that here he is, right? God has entered into time and space to dwell with his people. And when we talk about Jesus as the true temple, I want you to look with me at another passage here in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And if I could have somebody read that for us, John chapter 2. Verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed, 
the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, good. So there you have Jesus equating himself with the temple of God, the place where the presence of God dwells, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus was referring to himself. So there on your notes, if we want to meet with God, we must not go to a building, but to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we thank God for a building to meet in, but if the Lord willed a tornado to sweep through Orlando this week and rip this building and throw it, you know, five blocks down, we would still gather together as the people of God somewhere unaffected by that, right? The presence of God would still be with us because we're going to him to meet with him and not necessarily to a place. But again, we thank God for a place to be able to meet. So you have God's people in God's place. And now let's look at this last aspect of God's rule and blessing in the present kingdom. We see the rule of God in the present kingdom by recognizing that Jesus has come to establish a new covenant. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the old covenant, as he said in Matthew chapter 5, but to fulfill it, right? So he perfectly obeys its demands and therefore uniquely does not need to face the curse of the judgment that must be met by all lawbreakers. But as Paul says in Galatians 3.13, on the cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So there on your notes, Jesus dies to take the penalty we deserve so that we may receive the blessings of the covenant through faith in him. He lives a perfect life for us and then dies our death for us, right? So he's not only our substitute, but he's also our representative. He lives and dies for us, but he also lives and dies as us, okay? So our substitute and our representative. Uh, result of this is explained really well by Paul in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Somebody can read that for us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so there you have... God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus's. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And what was that righteous requirement of the law? Perfection, right? The law must be obeyed. It must be kept perfectly. And if it is broken, the lawbreaker must be penalized. Jesus fulfills both of those things. Okay? As our substitute and as our Representative. So we have this wonderful exchange that takes place here. And, and we can testify that if we've trusted in Christ, we can be sure that he has taken our sin and its judgment and has given us his perfect righteousness, which again, Paul says so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
again, this is all the working, the, the, the covenant of redemption, the work of the Father and the Son, and we are made beneficiaries of the work of what the Son has completed on our behalf. So when we think about the rule of God, we think about it in the context of Jesus establishing the new covenant. We recognize that that new covenant was established through his death. The writer of Hebrews brings this out in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, where it says, Therefore he, referring to Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called, that is his people, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, Jesus' death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, right? So all of that rebellion that we committed against God has been satisfied in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're under the blessing of God being in him. So when we think about God's rule in the present kingdom, we undoubtedly tie it together with that new covenant. But we also tie it together with the reality that Jesus is God's king. As Desmond showed us over the last couple lessons, the prophets made it very clear that God's promises would be fulfilled by a new king, a, a descendant of David, which again is why uh, the genealogy is very important, especially there in Matthew when it refers to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. So this, this king would establish God's rule and would introduce a new age in which the evil effects of the fall are undone. And so you see him in the Gospels um, healing people of their various illnesses and casting out demons. Uh, these are the signs of his kingship, the signs that this new creation he, that he has come to establish. And it was interesting because when you read through the Gospels, you see people asking, could this be the son of David? In other words, is he the king that's going to sit eternally on David's throne? Now, I want you to look at the response to that question and the subsequent dialogue that takes place in Matthew chapter 12. Turn there with me. Verses 22 through 28. Matthew 12, verses 22 through 28. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Right? Is this the king? Because this, this rule is powerful. This guy's healing people. He's casting out demons. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And then notice verse 28. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A very powerful statement. It's there on your note sheet. The kingdom of God has come because God's king has come. At times, he doesn't look much like a king, does he? Right? especially when he dies on the cross. But as the scriptures show us, that is the moment of his greatest victory when he defeats his enemies and sets his people free. As Paul is inspired to write this in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, if somebody wants to read that for us. Okay, right? So the the place where it looks like he is the weakest is the place where God displays his strength most supremely, right? What was happening at the cross was the disarming of the rulers and authorities and putting them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's an amazing reality that is taking place there. And then on the third day, he is raised again to life and later ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the resurrection proclaims beyond the shadow of the doubt that he's not simply the son of David, but he is the son of God, which is the way that Paul starts off his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, now notice how his son is described here, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection was the declaration that Jesus is who he said he was. The son of God. The king who God had promised was to come and rule. And then we also see that Jesus is the source of God's blessing. So we have that aspect of both the rule and the blessing. If you remember, he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now again, that's, that's a, an important aspect because we remember from our first couple studies that rest is the goal of God's creation. That does not mean that we're designed to do nothing, right? But rather that God wants us to share in that rest, that Sabbath day which symbolizes the perfection of God's creation. What Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall, as described in Genesis 2, but that everything was spoiled by, through their sin. And the Israelites knew something of that 
rest in the promised land and the partial kingdom. But again, that was just a pale reflection of what God gives his people in Christ. It is through the resurrection of Christ that Jesus introduces this new age where he faces the penalty of death and he comes out on the other side. And the promise that we have in the gospel is that if we trust in him, we begin to experience life as it was designed to be lived by our loving creator, as we are made new creatures in Christ. So there on your notes, the blessing of God is seen most clearly in the rest that we have from being in Jesus. United to him, which will experience in all its glory on that last day, which we're going to talk about in several weeks when we get into the last chapter on the perfected kingdom. But that, that rest we have entered into now, it's that already and that not yet, right? We're experiencing that rest at some level perfectly through our justification. That'll never change. Progressively through our sanctification in the here and now, but ultimately in that last stage in our glorification, we're going to enter into that rest that we have already begun to share in. So just to kind of recap here where we're, we're at, and I don't know if you can see this or not, but um, as we're just thinking about what we've looked at so far, the pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, and today we began looking at the present kingdom. And again, you can see the, the chart there that Roberts lays out in his book of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So it's a really helpful little synopsis of, of what we've looked at so far and how you can see it progressing and all leading forward to the work that, that Christ would accomplish. Yes. God's Big Picture, yeah, by Vaughn Roberts. Okay. All right, so next week we're going to pick up on the present kingdom. We'll look at a little bit more, explore some of that, look at um, one of the themes that we've seen running since the fall, and that is salvation by substitution and by judgment, um, as we've looked at that in the Old Testament, and we see that fulfilled um, in Christ. Okay? All right. Any uh, comments, questions before we close out? Yes, Anthony. One, two, three, four, five. Uh, Jesus dies to take the penalty we, we deserve so that we may receive the blessings of the covenant through faith in him. And then number six, the kingdom of God and his rule has come because God's king has come. Okay. All right. All right, good. Say that again. The, the name of the Vaughn Roberts. Yeah, V-A-U-G-H-N. Roberts. Say again. V-A-U-G-H-A-N. Is it? I just looked it up. Oh, okay. All right. No, hey, no, that's good. I, I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. I don't want to misspell his name. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, pray. We'll close out this morning. Father, we do thank you for uh, this lesson and, and just the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is. As the son of David, 
the son of Abraham, the son of God, the true Adam, the true Israel, the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. And Father, how we thank you that we being in him have come to enter into all the blessings of the covenant promises. Would you remind us afresh of all that we have in Jesus? And Father, I pray again that you would burden us for those that we see who are still in union with Adam, who are awaiting certain judgment, who have no sacrifice for their sins, but will pay for them for all eternity. Uh, Thank you for this blessing that we have been given. May it compel us to go and proclaim this glorious kingdom. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.